Father, I thank you for the fellowship that we can have. Uh, I thank you for the smiles and the laughter and the joy that we can experience in being together. And I just thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm just amazed yet again. I've had all fits together so well. I'm learning so much. And so I just pray that you'll help me to communicate clearly. Lord, pray that only truth will be spoken and that the hearts of all of us will be open to receive from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Revelation 14, we're going to basically cover the whole chapter, but not go over, not going to repeat what we did last week. So I'm going to build upon what we did last week in certain sections of it. Uh, You'll find it as we go. So what's Revelation 14 about? It's the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, the three messages from the three angels as they fly around the world during the tribulation, and the coming judgment. The Antichrist and his armies are squashed like a fly under a fly swat. How's that? That's a nice description. Splat. So the big picture, Revelation 14 answers two important questions raised by Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, was given dominion, authority. The saints were given into his hand. He could make war against the saints and overcome them. He would prevail against them and they would be killed. Revelation 13, 7. And so for people living in that time, it would be fair to ask, is this Antichrist, this beast, completely victorious over all God's people? But as we get to chapter 14, no, he's not. He only has a very short time where he has the authority to overcome them. Because Jesus will come back, if I can use this expression, with his big fly swat and he will squash him. (laughs) As easy as that, yeah? A fly has no defense against a fly swat, okay? And Satan is not quick enough to escape. So as soon as the time comes, he's dead, all right? He's squashed. And so are all the armies. It's going to be a literal bloodbath. All the followers of the beast, of the Antichrist, who seem to have everything going for them, killing all these tribulation saints, but no. And the 144,000, they all survive. So today... I'm going to go back to look at the 144,000 again, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. I'm going to link it back to Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goat judgment. All right, This is really interesting how this all fits in. And it gives us more insight into what life was like for the 144,000 when they were on the earth preaching during the seven-year tribulation. And the standard of judgment that God is going to use for the people in the tribulation. So, last week we learned that the 144,000 were standing with Jesus on Mount Zion, which is one of the hills that make up Jerusalem. And we went through and we saw that, or understood who they are, their role in God's plan of evangelizing the world and how they'll be sealed by the Holy Spirit, and were kept alive throughout the tribulation. So let's read those verses. It's Revelation 14, 1-5. And then we'll just revise them quickly. So it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing at Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name 
written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay. Redeemed. Redeemed from what? Sin. Penalty of sin, yeah? They are the first fruits. They are the first of the nation of Israel who had come to know Christ. Now, quiz. Who are the 144,000 according to the first part of Revelation chapter 7? What nationality are they? They're Jews. Okay, and can you tell me more? Yep. Yep, 12,000 from each of the tribes except one, which is Dan. Oh, very good. Someone's been listening. Okay, what sex are they? They're all males, yes. When are the 144,000 sealed? At the start or just before? Yeah. And why couldn't the 144,000 be harmed or killed? Yep, they had the seal of God on their foreheads. foreheads. How long did the 144,000 spend evangelizing the world? Yep, seven years. How many of the 144,000 died during the seven-year tribulation? None. Yep. How do we know? How many were standing with Jesus? All of them. They all made it through, yeah. 144,000 were sealed, and then there was 144,000 standing with Jesus on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. None were missing. How many people were saved during the seven-year tribulation according to Revelation 7, 9 to 17? During the tribulation, during the seven-year. Yep, a multitude that was too great to count. What are the three methods that God will use to evangelize the world during the tribulation? Yep, the angels, yep. The three messages through, through the three angels. The two witnesses, Moses and Elijah in, the, in Jerusalem, and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to jump straight into the sheep and goat judgment. We've covered this before, but not from this perspective, okay? I'm going to explain something that's really mind-blowing, all right? Well, I think it is. <laughs> so. So I'm going to put the chart up. So you've got the church age, you know, and it says you are here. And then soon, sometime, we get raptured, the church goes up. And then you've got the people who go into the tribulation are all unsaved people. And the Gentile believers and the Gentile unbelievers go to the Sheep and goat judgment, which happens just after Jesus comes back. So Jesus comes back, defeats the Antichrist, all that stuff. And anyone who's saved goes into the kingdom, 
the thousand-year rule and reign, and anyone who is not saved, who doesn't believe, goes to Hades or hell. So that's basically where the sheep and goat judgment fits. It's in that short period of time between the end of the tribulation and the start of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And it's sorting out who is saved and who isn't. Okay, Who's a believer, who's going to go into the thousand-year rule and reign, and who's not. All right. So let's read that. So I'm going to read Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, what's that, the second coming? Yeah. And all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. The throne of his glory, is that in heaven or is that on earth? Has to be the earth, right? All the nations, Gentiles, would be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now remember, in that culture, the goats or the sheep looked like the goats, right? They had a different breed of sheep than we do on our Australian farms, and they look very similar. And 33, and he will set the sheep, the believers, representing the believers, on his right hand, and in the scriptures, the right hand of God is the place of blessing or favor. Jesus ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father. Okay, In Ephesians, where's our position? At the right hand of God. Okay, But the goats or the unbelievers are on the left, signifying they're not in his favor. And verse 34, then the king, who's that? Jesus, yep. Yeah. Jesus is now the king over all the earth will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. What's the kingdom? The thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Okay, They're going to inherit it. They're going to go into it and enjoy it. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow, that's good, eh? This has been planned for a long time. For I was hungry and you gave me food. This is interesting. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, verse 37, saying, Lord, when? (laughs) When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king, Jesus, will answer and say to them, Okay, so this is a fair question, these questions that these people are asking. Lord, you weren't even there. You were in heaven. How did we do this for you? And Jesus' response is, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Who's these? Hmm. Find out. We'll keep reading. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison? and do not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, 
you did not do it to me. And verse 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, the main point here is, I'll put them up, verses 40 and 45. And the king, Jesus, will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And verse 45 says, And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. So we're going to have a little forensic thing here. We're going to be detectives. We're going to figure out who the these are. Okay. So the language makes it sound like a show and tell, as though Jesus is physically pointing to a group of people. Now, you did not do it to these, and he's pointing to or referring to some people okay, who were physically present at the time. So let's look at some of the clues. Firstly, they are all males because these and brethren are both masculine or male in the original Greek language. Those Greek words can be female or male. They can refer to males or females. These are all males. Secondly, think of this scenario. You have Jesus and before him are all the Gentile survivors of the tribulation the ones who believe on his right hand and the ones who don't believe on his left. So that rules out all the Gentiles, true? Does that make sense? The these, these people, the ones that Jesus is pointing at, can't be the Gentiles because all the believing ones are on his right hand and all the unbelieving ones are on his left. All the Gentiles are accounted for So it can't be any of those Gentiles. There's no more Gentiles. There's only two types of Gentiles, believing ones and unbelieving ones. So it can't be them. So if it's not Gentiles, then what nationality must they be? Jewish. So they're Jewish. The third clue is that it says, my brethren. Now, the Bible never uses the word my brethren except for saved people. He never calls the unsaved my brethren or my brothers. So now we have narrowed down the identity of the these, okay, to Jewish male believers. Now, is this starting to make you think about who they might be? Mm-hmm. Now, fourthly, also referring to the phrase my brethren, in the Greek it reads my the brethren, okay? So it's not all the male Jews who believe it's only a part of. It's a specific group of male Jews who believe. Okay, the definite article is there. It's the brothers, okay, the brethren. It's referring to a specific group of male Jewish believers and not all the male Jewish believers. And fifthly, the these, these people that Jesus is pointing to or referring to, had to be living during the tribulation period because Jesus is judging the sheep and the goats, the believing and unbelieving Gentiles, on how they treated these during the seven-year tribulation period. So we narrow this 
group further to a specific group of Jewish males who lived during the seven-year tribulation and were believers. Six, we see that they suffered and suffered greatly. They were not killed, but they were hungry, thirsty, homeless and destitute, naked, sick and in prison. Right? So, remember that for the first three and a half years, most of the Jewish nation will not be suffering very much because the peace treaty will be in place. And then, after the Antichrist breaks his promise, where are they going to be? In the country of Jordan, the Rock City, Petra, Bosra, the mountains, Jesus said, run to the mountains. So, all the area there, as we know, is Jordan now, on the other side of the Jordan River. They're going to be protected there. So, again, I think that the only people that it could be is 144,000 Jewish believers who spend their entire um, seven years of the tribulation sharing the gospel to the Gentile nations. And then they're exposed to the Antichrist and the unbelievers. So, just to say that again, I think it makes sense that the these referred to in verses 40 and 45, most likely refers specifically to the 144,000, and it could be applied more generally to the believing Jews as well. So here are some additional evidences that support the idea that Jesus is standing with the 144,000 as he judges between believers and unbelievers at the sheep and goat judgment at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So number one, they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Yeah, that's what it says in Revelation. All right, so I'm going to put a picture up here. And you can see where Mount Zion is, yeah? So here is Mount Zion. Here's the city of Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount. This is the Kidron Valley running through here and the, the brook. And when it's Passover... They used to do all their sacrifices in the temple and this brook would run red with the blood from the sacrifices. That's the brook that Jesus, he started around here somewhere and he walked down into the Kidron Valley and then up to Gethsemane, which is just on the Mount of Olives on the other side of the valley. This valley here is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Judgment. So you can imagine Jesus and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion and looking down, and all this area here, they have all those survivors from the tribulation. Does that make sense? Can you picture that in your head? Yeah. This is the valley where the sheep and goat judgment will occur. The, the location and timing are perfect. And the word Jehoshaphat means God has judged. So the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kidron Valley as we know it today, means the Valley of Judgment. And in the Old Testament, we have more details on this judgment. So Matthew 25 is also referred to in the book of Joel in chapter 3. Okay, So let's have a look at that. So Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, describe the events that will happen here. We won't read all of it, just a few of the verses. I want you to look for the similarities between what I've been reading in Revelation 13 to 14 and also Matthew 25 and the verses here in Joel chapter 3. Okay, So I'm going to read Joel verses 1 to 2 
and then 12 to 16. So it says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather, what? All nations, all the Gentiles, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. On account of what? My people. My heritage, Israel. Okay? How's he going to judge them? It's going to be according to how they treated his people, the people of Israel, yeah? That's in verse 2 of Joel chapter 3. Whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. And then going down to verse 12, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. And verse 13, now this um, should remind you of the second part of chapter 14, which we haven't read yet today. But it says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the bats overflow, for the wickedness is great. So we're going to read something very similar to that in the last half of, or the last part of Revelation 14. And verse 14 in Joel chapter 3, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. That's reference to the second coming. The Lord also will roar from Zion. So who's there? Jesus is. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of children of Israel. So he's going to bring back the nation of Israel to their country from those mountains where they were sheltering in the country of Jordan. So, again, this is more evidence that it is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists standing with Jesus on Mount Zion overlooking the sheep and goat judgment. I reckon it would be Jesus standing there with them behind. And as he says, as you have done to these, and he'll look at them. <laughs> and the believers will go, oh, I recognize that guy. He's the one who preached to me and I got saved. And the unbelievers will look at them and go, oh, I recognize him. He's the one I beat up. Whoops. <laughs> He's the one I kicked out. He's the one I wouldn't give any food to. Now, evidence number two that it's 144,000. It's logical that the 144,000 would be hated, mistreated, and persecuted by the unbelievers and the Antichrist because of the gospel they would be proclaiming. And evidence number three, the suffering is what gives them their own special song to sing. Remember we talked about the song, our song of the night? It's our own suffering gives us our own personal experience of knowing and understanding God's promises personally, not theologically. We experience them, that they are true. They become our song of the night now, and they become our song in heaven then. It's pretty cool, eh? And evidence number four, it's logical that the 144,000 will be loved, helped, and protected by those who received or believed their message. And so basically many Gentile tribulation saints will risk all to help these 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists. And, that's what, and that fits with what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31-46. So, they can't be killed, but they can be made to suffer. 
they will suffer. And it's through the believing Gentiles that they are kind of fed and provided for. That's how it appears here. Sheltered, clothed, all those things. So next time you read Matthew 25 and the sheep and goat judgment, what will you think about? Valley Jehoshaphat, Jesus standing there with the believers from the tribulation, the Gentile believers on his right, the unbelieving Gentiles on the left, and the 144,000 standing behind Jesus as evidence of judgment. And the ones who treated them right did so because they loved God and they loved his messengers. And the ones who treated them wrong did so because they hated God and therefore hated his messengers. And so the way they treated them was a reflection of their their heart condition, whether they were believers or not believers. So it's not about their works, it's actually about what they believed in their heart, whether they actually truly believed the message that they preached, whether they repented or not of their sins. Okay, let's go to verse 9 in Revelation 14, where it says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So this is all about the terrible future that awaits those who take the mark of the beast. So I talked a bit about this last week. I won't go over what we talked about last week. But I want to focus on a couple of words here. The wine of the wrath of God and the cup of his indignation. So there's two words for anger used here. All right, One is the word translated wrath. And that's a Greek word, thymos. And that's a passionate anger. So it's really when you kind of lose your temper. Okay, not saying God loses his temper, but when you're really passionate about something, you let loose, yeah? You demonstrate your anger. It's anger that's demonstrated, yeah? In God's case, I'm not saying he loses his self-control. The cup of his indignation, that indignation is another Greek word for anger, which is like uh, orge, okay, O-R-G-E. And that anger refers to a settled dispositional attitude towards something. So we could say that the cup of indignation represents God's positional attitude towards sin, that he will have nothing to do with it and nothing to do with those who have sinned. There can be no relationship between God and sinners. He's angry, he's indignant. Okay, that's it. On the other hand, we could say that the wine in the cup represents God's emotional reaction to sin. Sin makes God really, really angry, even wrathful. And sinners must be punished with a severe punishment. Now, the word for wrath, the thymos, is used 11 times in the New Testament, and 10 of those times are in Revelation. And what does that signify? God is revealing his wrath. He's pouring out his wrath. He's held back. He's holding back right now. But when the tribulation comes, he's not going to hold back. He's going to pour out his wrath. Okay. So the tribulation, again, is a time of judgment, and they will experience God's emotions, his wrath against them by the judgments that come upon them. 
And there's a verse here that helps us understand part of the nature of God that people don't like to talk about very much. And that's Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13. It says, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked. How often? (laughs) Every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. So, God doesn't wink at sin. All sin must be punished. If we don't accept Christ's payment of sin on our behalf, then we'll have to pay for it ourselves all over again. And what does it look like? What does this punishment look like? He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. So what does this teach us about the the future of those who refuse to believe? Tormented with fire and brimstone. It's real, it's painful, and it's repulsive. You know, brimstone is sulfur. It stinks, yeah? It's hard to breathe. Now, why isn't hell talked about? Because it's repulsive, right? It's not a nice topic to talk about. But if you don't talk about it, then people aren't going to try and avoid it. It's like having a blind man. I watched a video. It was on Ray Comfort's thing. You know, this blind man is walking towards a cliff. (laughs) And you don't say anything. You just let him keep walking. That's what it's like when you don't warn people about hell. Okay, And eventually the blind man is going to walk off the cliff. And who's responsible? You are. Okay, I am. If I didn't tell him. And it says, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I've got a quote from Guzik to explain this. He does it well. This shows that God is not absent from hell. He is present in all his holiness and righteous judgment. Those who are in hell will wish God were absent, but he will not be. It is wrong to say that hell will be devoid of the presence of God but it will be without any sense of his love. The presence of Jesus will be there, but only the presence of his holy justice and wrath against sin. Remember that wrath is poured out for how long? Forever and ever, okay? So they'll be experiencing that emotional anger against sin forever. And the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So. Those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark will endure this wrath and indignation for eternity in the lake of fire. Now, Valvoid says of the phrase forever and ever, it says literally into the ages of ages. And there's no stronger expression of eternity that you can use in the Greek language. That's the strongest one. So there's no second chances. Now, in the church age, you've got until the time you die. In the tribulation, you've got until that choice you make when you take the mark of the beast or not at the halfway point, if you survive that long. (laughs) Remember, three quarters of the world's population will be dead by the time the end of the seven years. you got a 25% chance of getting through. That's not much, is it? Now, some questions. What happens to those who choose to not worship the image of the Antichrist who died and was somehow resurrected? If you choose not to worship the image of the beast, then you are 
killed. Now they lose their temporary life, but they save their eternal soul. Now what happens to those who choose to worship the image of the Antichrist who was killed but was somehow resurrected? They save their temporary life, but damn their soul, their eternal soul, to the lake of fire for eternity. And verse there is Matthew sixteen twenty four to 26 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Very powerful passage. All right. What does the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, represent? It's the righteous judgment and anger or wrath of God against sin. Now, what does the word propitiation mean? Try not to look at your notes. Payment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He gave the penalty and he paid the penalty. There's another way of putting it. In the uh, Old Testament days, the word propitiation means to avert the wrath. So you'd pay a price, give a sacrifice, do something to please the God so the God wouldn't hurt you. You'd get protection from the God. But in the Christian sense of the word, as it's used in the Bible, it means that God paid his own fine. He's made the payment for sin. Now, what's the penalty or punishment for sin? And according to Romans 6.23. It's death, yeah. Okay, so that's eternal separation from God in the lake of fire where the person will experience eternal torment and the wrath of God forever and ever. So it's not talking about when our heart stops beating, it's talking about our eternal destiny. Now what payment did Jesus make, or what cup did he drink when he died on the cross? He drank that cup, right? The cup, which was full of God's anger and wrath, that I deserve to drink, was poured out onto Jesus, and he, in his humanity, experienced the separation from God that we should have. Now, how do we know that Jesus, in his humanity, experienced the agony of being separated from the Father? Where does it say that? Mm -hmm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, And here, Jesus expresses his feelings of abandonment as being forsaken by God as God placed the sins of the world on him and had to turn away his face from Jesus. So as Jesus was feeling the weight of that sin and the wrath of God, he in his humanity, notice that it says, in his humanity he was experiencing a separation from God for the first and only time in all of eternity. So in his God nature, he was not separated, but in his human nature, he was and why couldn't he be separated from God in his God nature? Because God can't die, right? Only the human nature of Jesus could die. That's why it's important that the human nature of Jesus and his God nature are two completely separate things. They're not 
joined in any way. They're separate. Jesus, as a man, experienced separation from God and the wrath of God. And why is the penalty for sin so severe? I mean, if you stole my car, I probably wouldn't care all that much. If you hurt my family, I'd be caring a lot more. Right? I'm starting to it's starting to get up there. I, I you know, you better watch out if you start to hurt my family. <laughs> but God is so much more or infinitely more holy and pure and loving than I am. He cares so much more about those people who get hurt than I do. Therefore his penalty is so much greater. Okay? His penalty for sin is infinite because his holiness is infinite. Now move on. It's the blessedness of the saints even in the great tribulation. So Revelation 14, 12 to 13, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors. <laughs> you heard that phrase, rest in peace, RIP, yeah? So what we see here is the strong contrast between the rest of the saints, okay, they die but they experience rest. The unbelieving people, they die and they experience torment forever. We experience rest forever. And there's a quote from Guzik I want to read to you. It says, We can only imagine what courage and comfort this passage will give embattled, persecuted saints during the Great Tribulation. Clearly God wants to encourage his people to be steadfast in times of trial, focused on what blessed rest and reward awaits them in eternity. Now, guess what? We have that same comfort now, true? We have our own battles, but it's the hope of heaven that keeps us going. We keep our eyes on the eternal inheritance and reward and not the temporary pleasures of earth. And a quote from John Corson. It's quite relevant to, I think, all of us. It says, why do I go through this struggle year after year? You wonder. This is what he says. The reason is that it's absolutely necessary to get you uncoupled from the world, to set you free from the pull of the temporal, to get you to long for heaven. If the people to whom our text was initially written were living on an island in Hawaii, being waited on hand and foot under swaying palm trees and the setting sun with no money problems, no physical pain, no marital stress, no child-rearing difficulties, they would probably say, my butler should be here any minute with my filet mignon. So, could you hold off your return for a little while longer, Lord? Hard times will never come to an end because God knows that the only way we'll long for heaven and thus fix our eyes on eternity. Jesus didn't talk about heaven while sitting on the beach, overlooking the ocean, sipping a Coke. He talked about heaven in the same passage in which he told his disciples one of them would betray him. One of them would deny him, and he himself would die. And you can read all that in John chapters 13 and 14. So even when Jesus talked about heaven, he spoke of heaven as he was suffering. 
His hope was in heaven. Yeah? And Colossians 1, 4 and 5 makes it clear that our hope and our motivation for godly living is an eternal one, a heavenly one. So I'll read that to you. It says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And verse 5 is important. It says, Which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. So what do we understand with the gospel? We have, it says in Ephesians, we receive an inheritance, right? Have we received our inheritance yet? Partly. But there's a lot more coming. There's a lot more coming, including a glorified body, including freedom from pain and sin and all those nasty things that we get down here. Verse 13, the works follow them, is another quote from David Guzik. He says, The patient endurance and work of these saints is remembered in heaven. Our work for Jesus and his kingdom goes with us into heaven, giving dignity and significance to all the work, and you could say suffering here below. Dignity, okay? There's a reason for it. It's okay. So living for Jesus is never for nothing. The sacrifices we make for the kingdom of God, when we get to heaven, we're going to say it was all worth it. We're not going to be saying, oh, you know, now I'm in heaven. I wish I'd watched more episodes of Neighbours instead of witnessing my friends. Or I wish I'd spent more time fishing instead of reading the Bible, you know, stuff like that. It's not going to be talked about like that. Rather, the lament or regret will be, as we stand before the beam of seat judgment and are judged for reward, oh, I wish I had never watched any episodes of Neighbours or wasted any time playing computer games or watched those dumb movies or hung up with those so-called friends, etc. And instead have used the time to read the Bible, pray, fellowship and witness to those around me of Christ's love. How much better, eh? So that's getting pulled into the temporal instead of having our eyes on the eternal, okay, the hope of heaven, the inheritance, the beautiful rewards that God has got for us there. Not just rewards for the things we do, but rewards of salvation. The things that everybody enjoys. Being in the, the physical presence of Christ is one of them. Okay, now application. Never forget that our works, those things that are motivated by love for God and thankfulness, for all that he has already done for us, will receive reward. And I'm just going to finish with four verses to end this section. And it says, Hebrews 6 verse 10 from Amplified, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget or overlook your labor and the love which you have shown for his name's sake in ministering to the needs of the saints, as you still do. He will not forget your labor of love which you have shown, what for? For his name's sake. And the next one there is 1 Corinthians 15.58. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Why are you strong? Why enthusiastic? Because you have an eternal reward. There's a reason for it, yeah? It's dignity. As David Guzik said. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Don't you realize that in a race everybody runs, but only one person gets a prize. So run to win. Philippians 3 
verses 13 and 14. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Okay? Forgetting the temporary things, pushing forward to what lies ahead in eternity, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive what? The heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. There's a prize waiting for us. It's worth it. Now, the very last section is verses 14 through 20. Just cover verses 14 through 16 quickly. It says, and this is Christ's second coming and the reaping or harvesting of the earth. And it's talking about the people on the earth. And this is actually tying into the battle of Armageddon. So Revelation 14, 14 to 16, it says reaping the earth's harvest. And this is the righteous or believers. There's no condemnation here. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus, yep. Yeah. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, representing something to reap with. You know, cut the grain, yeah. In Matthew 13, this is parable Jesus gives, and the tares grow up with the wheat. Matthew 13. And they grow up together, and the tares and the wheat look very similar. You can't tell them apart. But the Master says, no, wait until the very end, then harvest separate them at the very end. Okay, So that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to first get all the grain and put it into his barn, heaven, yeah. And so I just continue reading. And another angel come out of the temple, and as the temple on earth, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So, again, notice that there's no judgment for those who reap in this harvest. The angel comes out of the temple on the earth, not the temple in heaven. You compare verse 17, where the angel comes out of the temple which is in heaven. And this would represent the gathering or harvest of the believers at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And the Son of Man is most likely Jesus. And the word ripe there, it means overripe. It means that like the, the fruit on the tree is withered. Does that make sense? So God doesn't harvest before the fruit is ripe. He harvests when the fruit is overripe. And that means he's giving more time for people to be saved. This is another example of his mercy. God doesn't rush into judgment. As we talked about before, he's patient and his desire is to give people as much time as possible to repent. Okay, now the last three verses... Uh, 17 to 20, reaping the grapes of wrath. And this is, I think, is referring to the battle of Armageddon. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. Okay, different to the previous one. And he also having a sharp sickle. Just as a note, these angels are most likely archangels. Okay, this is another angel. It's always another of the same kind. There's about up to 10 of them. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, that's Jesus, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. It's a different harvest here, right? 
This is a harvest where there's condemnation, there's punishment. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. The city is Jerusalem. And blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's roughly 320 k's, about the distance from Bosra or Petra to Jerusalem. So, a few things to notice. The city in verse 20 is Jerusalem. Fully ripe, this is a different word. It pitches grapes fully grown in their prime, almost bursting with juice. And you know how a, a tomato explodes when you throw it? A fully ripe tomato? <laughs> so, if you're treading on these grapes which are bursting with juice and you've got bare feet, that's how you used to do it. Take your shoes off, get in the wine pressed, and these grapes go... Pfft, you know, it would be quite funny. All right. So what it represents is the spurting of blood and speaks of the awful human carnage. We'll come back to that more later. So blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So this is a picture of Jesus in a wine press squashing the grapes. Now the grapes represent who? The unbelieving armies the unbelieving armies of the Antichrist and the world all gathered together against Jesus. And it's Jesus destroys them as easy as you would squash grapes. <laughs> and the blood goes everywhere, literally. So this is a picture of the tremendous carnage in the Battle of Armageddon, described in Revelation 16, 16 and 19, 11 to 19. So I don't think it's a pure river of blood, like only blood running for that distance. You'd need a lot more than 300 million soldiers killed and there still wouldn't be enough blood. However, if you read ahead in chapter 16 verse 21, the very last bowl judgment includes a massive earthquake and hail, 32 kilo hailstones. So where there's hail, it's going to smash them to bits. So you imagine all these army guys running around. There's hundreds of millions of army guys running around, yeah? And women, I suppose. And you got these 32 kilograms, like it says in the Bible, one talent. That's a weight that's roughly 32 kilos. Smashing these people, crushing them, and then what happens to the ice? It melts. You're in the Middle East, right? It melts. And so you've got this blood, You've got the water, and it turns into this river flowing down to the lowest point, turns into a river, and you've got blood flowing up to the horse's bridles. That's one way of looking at it, okay? Taking into account the, the hail. Of course, Jesus could also just speak, and the bodies could fall apart. There's evidence for that too in the scriptures as well. Now, Coming back to our second question from the very start of today, what happens to the Antichrist and his followers? Well, these people who are fighting against God, they are completely wiped out. They are slaughtered. Their blood will be shed. So that's why Revelation 14 is the answer to Revelation 13. At the end of Revelation 13, it's like, the Antichrist is going to win. No, he's not. Revelation 14 gives you his end, his very sad and violent end. God is in control. Just read this bit. But Revelation 14 shows who is really triumphant, powerful, and in control. God, his Messiah, and his people. Not Satan, 
his Messiah, the Antichrist, and his followers. Now, Armageddon comes from the word Mount Megiddo, or Tel Megiddo, and that's an area, is a vast plain in northern Israel. And I'll put this map up for you. So here's Israel. Here's the Valley of Megiddo, or Tel Megiddo, with the Valley of Megiddo there as well. And that's where they'll be staging their armies, the hundreds of millions, because it's the only place in Israel that's flat enough to have that many people. So then they're going to go down to Bosra and try and attack the people down here. This is where Petra, Bosra, there's the, the mountains. Jesus will flee to the mountains. This is Jerusalem. They'll flee to the mountains down here. The Antichrist and the armies will try and attack there. But they'll be repelled by no one else but Jesus himself. And he'll just crush them. He might use, just use the hailstones. He might just use his speech and just uh, miraculously destroy them as well. And they'll be attacking Jerusalem at the same time. So that's why it, from all that distance it's going to be in that valley. It's going to be a bloodbath. Okay, now it's going to finish with Isaiah, and this gives us more information about this final war, this battle of Armageddon, as we call it, okay, of Jesus doing his thing of judgment. So Isaiah 63, 1-6 says, Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Bozrah, with his clothing stained red, who is in his royal robes, marching in his great strength? And you, you might, if you stop there, you think, oh, who is that? But it's very clear, <laughs> the next line says, It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, has a power to save. Pretty cool, eh? I, the Lord. Why are your clothes so red? You can imagine the people asking him, Why are your clothes so red? As if you have been treading out grapes. Yeah? In the wine press, as we just reading. Verse 3, Jesus says, I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me, like he just did it himself. He doesn't need anyone's help. And talking about wrath, he says, In my anger I have trampled my enemies, as if they were grapes. In my fury I have trampled my foes, their blood has stained my clothes. Verse 4, For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. That's the, the Antichrist and the world system. And my people, of course, is the people of Israel. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm. And my wrath, that emotional outpouring of anger, sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. So this is quite literal. This is Jesus coming back. This is the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the Tribulation period. Who is the one? The question is asked there. It is I, the Lord. It is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come back in spectacular fashion. All right, We're going to be with him on our white horses. He's going to be his white horse. And after he's destroyed his enemies and there's blood flowing, he'll touch down on the Mount of Olives, but we'll get to that later. So, Jesus wins, okay? <laughs> Jesus wins. Just remember that. So I, I want to apply this to our 
age that we're living in now, which is the church age, just to finish. So the image of the second coming of Christ as a harvest is also communicated in Matthew 13. And it's a parable of the wheat and the tares. And the application for us is that true believers will not be separated from those who merely go to church, those false converts, until the final harvest. And we can, we can consider the rapture as a form of harvest. Okay, God harvests the Christians and takes them away. But until that point, us Christians have to live with a whole lot of people who are probably not Christians in our churches. And my application here is don't give up, don't be distracted or discouraged by those false converts who don't seem to care and don't seem to struggle. The church is full of false converts. Jesus said there will be many who come to me that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we you know, minister in your name? He said, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, you people who did not repent. So we are surrounded with people who don't seem to struggle, who don't seem to care. We need to keep caring, we need to keep struggling. So run to win, fight effectively. The battle may look hopeless now, but take comfort because the war is already won. So Father, thank you. Just like the tribulation saints, they have this to look forward to, Jesus physically coming back and smashing his enemies, this army of hundreds of millions of people. There's going to be 200 million just coming over from around China and that, the east, crossing the Euphrates River, and plus more. Lord, with one word, you can crush the whole lot of them. And the same is true for us. Lord, we wait for the day that we either go to be with you or we are raptured, Lord. You take us away. And that's a part of your harvest as well. So I thank you for showing us this, showing us our future, our glorious future, and showing us the future of the ungodly. Help us not to live like the ungodly. Help us to have our eyes on heaven and doing things that please you, not because we have to, but because we want to. Pray in Jesus' name. But before I say amen, I read a verse this morning, and I want to read it to you now. It's Psalm 58, verse 10 and 11. And it says, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Amen.